did some stuff. I can't even remember what I did yesterday. Uh, um, but yes, you went out with our friend, our new friend. Oh yeah, I went out with a friend exactly in the evening. And what did we do the whole day? We just did a bunch of stuff. We ran errands. True. We <laughs> just we did like a lot of like work stuff, like personal work stuff. We went to the coffee shop. Oh um, yeah, we did. We, did we haven't talked about it in a little bit on the on the podcast, but we still go to our favorite coffee shop, the office. We um, do. It's great. Uh, if you have a local coffee shop, let us know. Um, if we're ever in your area, we'd love to visit. That's right. That's where we do our preparation or some work. Or some work. Um, so uh, today is such a cool episode. Um, I honestly, this episode has made me think of so many things and just tied it to a bunch of like cultural stuff that's been happening this um, month and this like last couple years. So I'm really excited to share this with you. So are you ready? I am ready. And it's really cool because we are diving into something that we did not touch base with yet when it comes to the type of culture. Exactly. Um, so this week's resources are oldworldgods.com, ccdlclaremont.edu, mrhood.com, um, dilu.digital, dot edu blogs dot uk the smithsonian mag dot com tiktok dot com and miriam webster dot com so danny i'm sure we've all heard the saying hell hath no fury like a woman scorned <laughs> do you guys have something like that in germany like that type of saying not that I can think of right now, no. Well, in English we do, and that's it. <laughs> um, it is a warning, more than anything, not to women really, but more to men. And I wondered, why is that? Why is it that this warning exists? And why is there like a weird ring to it when someone says it? And why does it have to be said? Those are the questions that came to my mind. Mm-hmm. As a person of this world and society, I often hear the literal vocal complaint that comes out of mouths of misogynists as soon as someone says, I work with mostly women, or we're having a girl. Their immediate response is, ugh, good luck, that's drama all the time, or oh, you poor thing. But I have worked in both environments in varying positions of importance, from restaurants to the Hill in DC with interns and high-level executives, and I can 1,000% say false. I also have a sister, so false, okay? Empowered women empower everyone. When you are in a company, when you are in a group, when you are in a nonprofit, whatever community, and it is led by an empowered woman, I can a bajillion percent tell you that that woman will empower everyone. I can't... I mean, my boss is a woman. I, To be honest, I don't really care if it's a woman or a man, but I can say that I get along with her quite well. 
Yeah. But for me, it's not really about if it's a man or a woman, but if it's like goal oriented. And I think right. there can be both for both genders. Like, right, absolutely. And that's, and that's the, the best way to think about it. But there are people who aren't like you, you beautiful soul. Yeah, but I think it's more like a character trait and like your way of how you are. And it can be right for women and can be right for men. And I think if you didn't experience a woman like that, then you, there are women out there like that. Right, but it also, even if you have experienced or haven't experienced someone who is like that, if you have that um, prejudice in your mind already, you're even though they're fully competent and fully great, you're not going to see it. You're not going to want to see it. For example, this week, I think it was this week, a woman basketball player, which is like the highest, um, uh, I think like one of the highest ranking drafts, something. These guys went to her basketball game. These chads and brads went to this basketball game and decided that they were going to start chanting overrated to her because she is like one of the like highest oh my god, I don't know what it is, but like, of of like men and women, she's like incredible. Mm-hmm. And the, the guy, um, the account I was following was saying like, we love that the camera person followed her every time she made a shot and then panned to the guys and they were like overrated and over the game, they just got quieter and quieter <laughs> and quieter <laughs> And it, you know, you can experience like great people, great people, right? I'm pretty sure they all have experienced great athletes of either gender, right? Um, and yet they still went out of their way to go to her game to trash talk her. And let me tell you, she shut them up real quick. So, continuing. I went back to the saying, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. And it was like, okay, before being scorned, a woman is living in peace, right? It's not like hell hath no fury like a woman at all times. Mm -hmm. Hell hath no fury like a woman going grocery shopping, right? It's like hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. Going to Target. That's more like heaven hath no peace like a woman in Target. <laughs> um, and then the post-scorned is her retribution that is completely unparalleled, unpar- not even by any power in hell. Then what does scorn mean? Because I want to know why does this action invoke fury from women, Right. So if we have an if-then sentence, right? If scorned, then fury comes, right? If yeah. woman scorned, then wom- like woman has fury, yeah. right? So the definitions of scorned are as follows. One, open dislike and disrespect or mockery often mixed with indignation. Two, an expression of contempt or derision. And three, an object of extreme disdain, contempt, or derision, something contemptible. So, therefore, to be scorned 
is the worst level of disrespect anyone can receive. And then it clicked. <laughs> I mean, everyone has the right to be furious if they get disrespected. Hold, hold, to that, hold on to that thought. I love that you said that, but hold on to that thought. Typically, this saying has been used in the context of a lover's quarrel. And many might have thought that to scorn someone might even mean to hurt someone who is romantically interested in you. But the true meaning is beyond that. It means to disrespect so much so that you're really expressing and holding extreme contempt. After looking into the definition, I looked into the intonation that is typically paired with the saying, and it is almost with a sense of mockery. As though to make light of the situation and to justify what the other person has done, the person who disrespected the woman. What is intended to be a serious warning is chalked up to be another form of gaslighting women into believing that their responses to being disrespected and held in extreme contempt is just women being overly dramatic. Again, I mm -hmm. looked within... And I looked at my circle, my community, and then the internet. And then I had a, another aha moment. Who is telling the story? Today, if you look at our resources, you will see a TikTok video. And this TikToker is incredible with her portrayals of certain scenes and sounds popular on social media. But more specifically, she made a video of the difference between movies and shows and videos of female rage when it's written by a male writer and when it's written by a female writer you can pause to watch the video now yay okay welcome back everyone <laughs> so now that you guys watch the video that's yeah. so true i mean the first description would be more towards being i don't know like desperate don't know what to do like yeah that's typically and right. that's why we have like the bechdel test right um if you guys hear noises in the background that's salem she is in a box so ignore getting in one yep. <laughs> um but basically it's you know the difference between how a male writer has it versus how a female writer has it um this intro is a little bit longer than usual, but bear with me and trust me through this mental journey. Why are we talking about rage and fury? Why is this a subject we don't always hear when we're talking about great women? Well, going back to my earlier question, who is writing the story? I found an article that we will be talking about today um, from the Smithsonian Magazine called Why So Many Mythological Monsters Are Female by Nora McGreevy. We will go deeper into the article later, like we usually do, but what really fascinated me were these initial sentences. A surprising number of these creatures are coded as women. These villains, wrote classicist Debbie Felton in a 2013 essay, quote, all spoke to men's fear of women's destructive potential. The myths, then, to a certain extent, fulfill a male fantasy of conquering and controlling the female. And this week we're talking about a Japanese woman, Kiyohime, in the myth, The Legend of the Bell of Dojoji. 
let's begin. Let's go. Although there are a number of variations on the story of tragic romance and the Dojoji Bell, the most famous version is that of Anchin and Kiyohime. If I am mispronouncing, I am so sorry. I did look up how to pronounce them, um, but I can't guarantee that I'm saying it fully correctly. Anchin, a young and hum- handsome priest, embarks on an annual pilgrimage from Mutsu to Kumano and seeks shelter at the Masago Noshoji family mansion. It is here that Kiyohime, the daughter of the mansion's lord, falls deeply in love with Anchin. In a playful manner, Anchin promises to marry her if she behaves well during his stay. However, upon his return from the pilgrimage, Anchin fails to keep his promise and evades Kiyohima's affections. Devastated by Anchin's betrayal, Kiyohima's sadness gradually transforms into rage and vengeance. She relentlessly chases after Anchin, who seeks divine intervention and prays to Kumano Gongen for help. Through this divine intervention, Kiyohime is momentarily paralyzed, allowing Anjin to escape her clutches. Enraged by his escape, Kiyohime transforms into a fearsome giant serpent that spews fire. The story takes a tragic turn as Anjin pays a ferryman to prevent Kiyohime from reaching him. Desperate to seek refuge, Anjin finds solace at the Dojojin Temple. In an act of revenge, Kiyohima wraps her serpentine body around the temple bell, engulfing Anchin in a fiery embrace, leading to his demise. The bell's fiery symbolism represents the destructive power of unrequited love and the tragic consequences that follow. As the tale of Kiyohima yokai unfolds, it delves into the complexities of human emotions and the consequences of broken promises. And that is the story of Kiyohime. Quite a short one. It's quite a short one. Um, and there are many things that come to mind because the story isn't a very long one. And it doesn't dive deep into the relationship bet- between the two main characters and who they are individually. Especially because the story is depicted on scrolls and triptychs. The writing and the art are valuable as always. And it's really cool. You can really look those pictures up and you can see like the picture. Yeah, the scroll. The scroll basically and, and how the story evolves. So yeah, great it's art. It's very cool. And I don't know when when it was painted, but I think like someone... There like are different variations. So there's some from the 12th century. 11th, 12th century, 18th century, 14th century. Um, there's a bunch out there. And even to this day, there's like anime series, video games that have um, this character mm-hmm. reinterpreted. Um, reinterpreted. So we, you know, there, um, in some of the resources, there are some articles that show like the different interpretations if you want to take a look at that. The tale of Kiyohima and Anchin has been used to justify the Buddhist belief that, quote, women have little inclination towards enlightenment in the next world, but deep reserves of jealousy and evil sexual desires. The depiction of Kiyohime, especially when it is done by male artists, serves as an insight into Japanese society's opinion of angry women at the time of the piece's creation. One constant in all portrayals of Kiyohime is that she gets more inflamed. Her appearances become more bedraggled and less beautiful. A 
as beauty in women was and still is highly valued in Japanese society, the association between Kiyohima's anger and the and appearance serves to lessen her humanity as the tale continues. Her loss of beauty symbolizes her loss of humanity throughout her transformation. According to Japanese mythology, Kiyohima, whose name translates to pure lady, was the daughter of a nobleman during the reign of Emperor Daigo. In the year 928 CE, Kiyohime fell in love with a handsome Buddhist priest named Anchen, who was traveling through her town. However, Anchen was sworn to celibacy as a monk and could not return Kiyohime's affections. Once he discovered her feelings, Anchen promised he would visit her, but fled to the Dojoji temple instead. Upon learning of his deception, Kiyohime ran after Anchen. Eventually, she caught up to him at the Hidaka River, which we talked about, but then, like we said, he hired a ferryman to carry him across, forcing Kiyohime to swim across the river without a boat. As she swam, Kiyohime's rage grew greater and greater and greater, eventually transforming her into a vengeful dragon. With the help of some monks, Anchen hid from Kiyohime in the Boncho, or Temple Bell. However, with her newly powerful nose, Kiyohime smelled Anchen and wrapped herself around the Boncho, creating fire, breathing fire onto it until he burned to death inside. Consumed by grief at the loss of her love and of her own humani- humanity, Kiyohime kills herself. Some vital motifs to keep note of, especially when you look at the art that accompanies the story, are the significance of the pattern of Kiyohima's kimono, as well as the way the artist chooses to portray Kiyohima's mutation, whether it be through a literal depiction of transformation or through visual metaphors. For example, one of the triptych portrays the moment at the boatman um, scene, uh, Nemiroku rows Anchin across the Hidaka River, leaving Kiyohime behind, the specific depiction of Kiyohime as played by the Kabuki Onagata actor Nakamura Fukosuke. This scene takes place when Kiyohime is still fully human. However, her kimono has a pattern of triangles and sakura blossoms. And in Kabuki, a triangle patterned kimono symbolizes serpentine scales. So that's kind of a foreshadowing. Mm-hmm. Okay. So they start the evolution with the clove and then... Well, it's not really the evolution, but it's like the foreshadowing. Yeah. Okay. And Sakura blossoms are also a symbol of ephemeral or fallen beauty. This imagery is important in the story of Kiyohime as she was a beautiful noble lady before her anger corrupted her. And I say that with a lot of sarcasm and disdain. And later, instead of hair, Kiyohime angrily gnaws on a part of her kimono. With furrowed eyebrows, her loose hair flies up around her. Finally, Kiyohime has become enraged enough to complete her transformation into a dragon. This piece incorporates all the motifs previously mentioned. Kiyohime's kimono is patterned with triangle scales and semicircle waves and sakura blossoms fall from the boncho, so the bell. The print takes a different approach to Kiyohima's transformation in comparison to the first scroll painting. Rather than directly portraying her as a serpent, Kiyohima's trailing kimono 
starts to represent her dragon tail. Another hint at her transformation is her pointed, subtly beast-like ears. As her kimono curls around the bell, flames can already be seen licking from within or ancient hides. The sakura blossoms are most prevalent in, the, in this piece, making Kiyohime's corrupted beauty its focus. So really, all of that is to show and say that a woman showing any other emotion other than acceptance, submission, and rising above being scorned is non-human and corrupt. And I had another question. Okay, go for it. What about flipping the switch for a few minutes? Let's reverse the roles. Mm -hmm. If the pursuer had been the male character, I'm betting the following three conclusions would have been made. One, his love for her to pursue her is a grand gesture. He transforms into a great and powerful animal to show his love and dedication to her. Two, she knew what she was doing. She shouldn't have played with his heart. And how could she do that while being a monk? And three, she should have been flattered that he followed her. That's love. That's courting. So if the roles were reversed, I'm pretty sure those would be the three conclusions that people would have thought about in the story. His actions would have been justified. And yet, hers weren't. He would be a baller, and she is non-human. Let's just say it. That still happens today. Most notably in pop culture with Serena Williams in the 2018 U.S. Open. Her justified anger at being blatantly disrespected in a field where she clearly dominates was made out to be in publications as a $17,000 fine for not behaving like a quote-unquote woman. While up until very recently, similar and less justified outbursts and tantrums by male tennis player James McEnroe had little to no consequences. That is why, in the music video for The Man by Taylor Allison Swift... She talks about having to be on all the time in multiple aspects of her life that many men have the luxury of keeping separate from their business, specifically these lyrics. They'd say I hustled, put in the work. They wouldn't shake their heads and question how much of this I deserve. What I was wearing, if I was rude, could all be separated from my good ideas and power moves. And they would toast to me, oh, let the players play. I'd be just like Leo in Saint-Tropez. She would be the man. Actually, she is the man. She's the woe man. Go Tay. That's also um, Danny's next costume for us seeing the Eras tour this year, hopefully. Mm-hmm. I have to come back to the tennis rages. I really <laughs> love them just love them when they take the rackets and just smash them on the ground but it's not allowed to do it no but before because serena and venus williams they're incredible they're international 
widely known, not just for tennis, but for being great athletes. They're hyper popular. They're pop culture icons. And you guys can go into it and read why she got upset, but it's just like you they have taken a lot of stuff with stride and just let things go just be like you know what we're just gonna show them that we're good but when someone clearly and blatantly disrespects you to your face especially with women very few people expect women to bite back and when they do they're like oh my god like you don't have to be so dramatic you don't have to get your panties in a twist. And and that's the point, is that, like, if she were a man, they'd be like, she's a true, passionate sports player. Like, for example, for example, how many times have people, men, said to me, especially about Taylor Swift, especially about Taylor Swift, I'd be like, I'm a Swifty. At work, I've asked everybody, I was like, do you like Taylor Swift? Do you like Taylor Swift? Because I do. And um, I just have my whole life. Because I grew up with her. Pretty much. Right? So like since I was in the 6th grade. Till about now. In my youth. Early 20s. Early 20s. You know I've, I've identified with a lot of the things she's gone with. And gone through. And but people are like. Oh my god. You guys are obsessed. Like Swifties are obsessed. You guys are so basic. Blah blah blah. And I'm like, tell me how these same people that are drinking the haterade are the same people who act the same way about their favorite football player, their favorite baseball player, their favorite basketball player. They've never played a football in their life because, you know, they tore their ACL in high school. Um... They wear jerseys every day. They have the team logo on their hat, in their cups, on their Patagucci. Uh, they have like a bumper sticker in their car. And they're the same people talking mad crap about girls liking Taylor Swift. Or people in general, not just girls, people in general liking Taylor Swift. And I'm like... Do you want to be the pot or the kettle? Because we both black at this point. Yeah, that's true. And I mean, in the US in general, people are way too obsessed with the sports from my point of view. Uh, in Europe as well. They're just not obsessed with NFL. Yeah, it just gives people the feeling of belonging somewhere. But trust right, me, but it's life like is empty. Nobody, like, if... I'm not a big, like, baseball person, right, for example. Like, I like basketball. I love basketball. But, for example, like, a sport that I'm not really into, um, baseball, right? If you're obsessed with baseball, I'm not gonna, like, rain on your parade. I'm not gonna yuck your yum just because it's not my thing. But this is the thing that where it goes down to, like, misogyny is like when women really rally around something and really like something the majority of the people are misogynists that put people down especially women down 
for liking something. And they'll call them basic. They'll call them uh, followers that they just are mindless and like don't know anything. And it's just a bunch of lies. Because the same thing could be reversed. Because if I'm looking back at you, the same people who are saying that are the same people who behave the exact same way, just with different interests. Yeah, I mean, they're probably just not wise enough to reflect on that and understand it. I'm exactly, and that's why they should listen to this podcast. Which, to go back to our story with Kiyohime being scorned by the male monk, Anchin, like Leo, who is notoriously made fun of in a cheeky way that he only has girlfriends until they turn 25, and he's a player baller with an ever-revolving roster but hey he's the man and chen not sure the depth of how he promised his love to kiyohime but he traveled for years to her house and each pilgrimage he promised his love to kiyohime in the art she's clearly not a girl she's a woman and in her mind he truly meant what he said he made her think and believe that he would really leave it all for her. The story is short, and so you have to really question the bits and pieces that are missing. Mm. Right? I didn't know that he was going there frequently. I just knew that he was there once. No, he would travel to that house for years. Ah, uh, okay. And when she grew up, she was like, okay... Like, I'm ready. Yeah, I mean, that gives it a different I, Like, it makes me wonder, like, you're a monk, first of all. Why are you, like, why is this girl so intent on her believing that you told her you would be with her? It gives, a, like, it gives Lolita vibes to me, you know? Where I'm like, you're an adult man. This girl clearly, clearly likes you and she's growing up to be a woman and now she is a woman so for these whole years she has had it in her mind in her heart this reality that you gave her right so in the article i mentioned earlier which i really encourage you all to read because it talks a lot about past stories we've discussed and some that we have for you in the future coming up what does it say? Here's the gist. Monsters have always been more than mere creatures of the imagination. They are reflections of societal fears and desires, serving as gatekeepers of cultural boundaries. In classical Greek and Roman mythology, a significant number of these monsters are depicted as women, revealing deeper anxieties about female power and autonomy. Ancient male authors crafted tales that projected their apprehension and fascination with women onto monstrous figures. For instance, Ovid's Metamorphosis introduces us to Medusa, whose visage could turn onlookers into stone, while Homer's Odyssey features Scylla and Charybdis, terrifying sea monsters portrayed as unequivocally female. These stories, though fantastical, mirror ancient perception of women as both seductive and threatening embodying patriarchal anxieties about female agency and this article also talks about 
even La Llorona, which we talked about as well. Mm-hmm. And really just focusing on these really forced archetypes that women get in stories. And remember, stories develop societies. Stories develop societies. So when you have these archetypes for women in stories, people start to translate that into archetypes for women in real life. And one of the things they said in this article was, if a woman is anything but a mother, she is a monster. So look at it from this side. Of a virgin, she's, you're going to fight for her to be your baby mama. If she's the mother, she is your baby mama. If she's the crone and or the whore, and crone or and or the whore, right? If she's the crone, she was your baby mama. Now she's old, she's wise, she's kind of scary, but you know, she has wisdom. Or if she's the whore, you want her to be your side baby mama, right? So in all these archetypes, it's this fascination of women as objects, not as humans. This fascination of women as what they serve for you rather than who they are. In the movie, The Swan Princess. Love this movie. It is hilarious. Kayla, my best friend, and I watched it. We laughed so hard. It was crazy. She asked him, why do you love me? And he goes, you're beautiful. And she goes, what else? And he's like, is there anything else? And I looked... um, into like some comments and videos on TikTok that talked about this video. And it was like, look at how people say they love you. Specifically, when men have a fascination for women, they answer it differently than when they have respect for women. So when they have a fascination for women, they'll respond to the purpose the woman has to the man. They'll be like, I love you because... Um, you make me breakfast every morning. When someone has a respect for women, they talk about the love they have for the person. I love you because you're intelligent. So there's like this difference of fascination versus respect. And it's like, it's really hard for people to like know the difference because, right, when you're a kid you know, you don't really know that you love someone for who they are. You love someone because they're in your circle, right? Like, why do you love mommy? I love mommy because she takes me to the park, Mm -hmm. right? But what you're really meaning to say is that I love mommy because she's caring. You don't have that concept yet of that's who she is. You only have that smaller vision of what she does for you. Mm -hmm. So in her recent published collection, Women and Other Monsters, Building a New Mythology, journalist Jess Zimmerman reinterprets these ancient narratives through a feminist lens. She reexamines the monsters of antiquity through a feminist lens. Quote, women have been monsters and monsters have been women in centuries worth of stories, she notes in the book. 
because stories are a way to encode these expectations and pass them on. I.e., stories build societies. Stories create societies. Stories nurture societies. The stories that we tell, right? Like, for example, in Germany, like Brothers Grimm's, there are a lot of like moral fables, mm-hmm. right? Don't talk to strangers. Don't sell beans. Don't sell your cow for magical beans, right? Like, kind of like there's a bigger message behind the story. And that's what they do about with women. These monsters are coded to be women. They have feminine attributes. They have like feminine sayings. They never say she's a woman and therefore she's a monster. But they put it in a way where you know what they mean. Kind of like in episode six, I think, when we talked about Twyla Mm -hmm. and Roberta. Um, we talked about how it's racially coded based on the perception of the reader, right? You might perceive, they never say what race either of the girls are, but based on your perception, you are then putting that projection onto that character right yeah based on your personal experience and but based but based on your prejudice right because for example in if you're in the south you might think one is black one is white or both are white who's to say that they're not both white or that they're they're not both black if you're in the north or in your west or south like prejudice exists and so that's what these myths had right they coded these monsters to be women right so that way if you see a snake or in like japanese culture if someone has these certain symbols around them in art you start to see these pieces of code that trigger parts of your brain that say she's a monster right so like the triangles on the kimono you know that that means serpentine figure right a foreshadowing of sorts or she's a a metaphor for something someone who was raised in that culture and understand what that kabuki means they're going to be like oh so a snake right we unfortunately don't know that because we only know from researching but in that society those stories that artwork and then what society tells you you have that idea and then even more on that quote if women get upset you they shouldn't because if you get upset then the society that you're in will see you as a monster furthermore zimmerman's work invites readers to reconsider these monstrous women not as a symbol of fear, but as embodiments of strength and resilience by embracing their qualities such as ambition, knowledge, and desire. As heroic, she challenges traditional interpretations that vilify female power. Through her reimagining of ancient myths, Zimmerman prompts readers to reflect on the stories 
passed down through generations and question the underlying message they convey. By doing so, she invites us to envision a mythology where women are not confined by societal constraints, but celebrated for their complexity and strength. In essence, Women and Other Monsters offers a compelling reevaluation of ancient mythology, highlighting the enduring relevance of these stories in understanding contemporary gender dynamics. It urges us to confront the narratives that shape our perceptions of women and to envision a mythology that celebrates their autonomy and resilience. With that being said, I personally want to champion Kiyohime and really put a damper on whatever false expectation has been given to women about not being enough. Not being enough to be human, to be enlightened, to be justified, to be respected, to be powerful, to be feared, to be a hero, a villain, or an anti-hero. Kiyohima is a great force, a great story, and moral story to all about how you better think twice before you disrespect a woman. Don't do it. You will regret it. And we're all about the long game. Her story then inspired the play by William Congreve, The Morning Bride. And thus we have our quote and true warning. Hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. Wow. That was a lot. Most of the time I was just thinking about what you were saying rather than being able to even contribute anything to that. But I agree, yeah, I mean, a lot of those things, recapturing it when it comes to stories, gives you a certain perception um, of how a man or a woman should be or what they would do in certain situations, right? So I think that was a really good point. And it does not have to be that way. It can be any way you want it to be. It doesn't, exactly. And I think that no matter who you are, um, there are great women who are incredible, who challenge the way you think, who challenge the way you view things. And I want to challenge our listeners, you know, if you're listening, think of a story Think of the villain that you've thought about most in your life, whether you love them or you hate them. And if they're a woman, I want you to give them a chance and think about their story. Because I'm pretty sure that you might be impressed. Even if they're evil and villainous, you might be impressed at their story. And women are allowed to be villains. We're allowed to be good. We're allowed to be evil. We're allowed to be great. We're allowed to be not great. Just like men. Yeah. And yeah, I think this is such a great story. And I want to add, I want to add, I want to add. Going back to what I said about how, you know, women are seen as monsters unless they're mothers it was fashion week recently and i'm pretty sure i'm gonna mispronounce it but the fashion line batsheva had 
a runway walk with models that were 40 years and up. 40-year-old models and up. And it was, they were amazing. I watched it. They walked with such grace, with such elegance, with such knowledge, um, with such confidence. And as someone who is very self-conscious about being an artist and being um, in the business in the, the quote-unquote late part of their life, right? Um, it really gave me a sense of confidence, a sense of, one, it sounds cheesy, but it's never too late. And two, uh, F what the haters say. Yeah, and I agree with that. I mean, at the end, how you get perceived is how you present yourself. So sometimes it's not just about, I don't, I don't know how to express it the best way. Sometimes it's not about um doubting yourself mm, uh. if you doubt yourself and you present yourself that way you are not going to express what you might want to express and you can only express on what people see how they perceive you so you really need to act on it and you need to act on it with confidence you right but on like a bigger sense there's a lot of cultural shift changes happening Where, for example, if you were a model in your 40s, in the 90s, even if you presented yourself with great confidence and great business knowledge, culture wasn't ready for that. So you have to change the culture around you as well. Yeah, but that doesn't change the fact that the person that was walking on there with confidence, with sex appeal, with the right knowledge was doing a great job people were maybe not realizing it or it was not the time for it but it doesn't change the fact that people already knew it it was just not accepted yeah and that's what i'm saying is that even if it's not accepted do it even if it's not accepted right now do it go for it try it out because you know what at the end of the day the haters are gonna hate it hate us gonna hate no matter what even if you're incredible even if you're the number one basketball pick for both men and women there's gonna be a group that comes into your basketball game and starts chanting overrated well those are the best promoters in the end so be happy for them or be happy about them yeah no publicity is bad publicity but keep going. Don't doubt yourself. Don't think that you're less of whatever you are. Of an artist, of a woman, of a professional, of a mom. Just because you don't fit into a certain box. There's so many ways to be so many different things. Just like there's so many ways to be a woman. Um, and with that being said, thank you guys all so much. That is the podcast for today. Thank you so much for listening and tuning in. We are so happy that this is our 16th episode. The time just flies by. 
As a reminder, our email is different. So if you have suggestions or inquiries, you can contact us at info at storiesofesses.com. Thank you, Schmitty. And you can find us now on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, TikTok, and Pinterest. All right. All the channels. We are on it. Thank we you guys for it. tuning in. We really appreciate it. If you enjoyed the podcast, do the cool thing and hit subscribe. Drop a five-star rating or leave a review. Um, your feedback helps us with episodes and it keeps the train rolling. That's right. Thank you, guys. I'm Gabby. And I'm Daniel. And we'll see you or we'll hear you next week. Until then, have a great week. Bye, guys. Cheers. <laughs>